This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're watching episode three, series two of Battleground, the show that wages war on woke each and every week here on ADH TV, the home of robust opinion. I'm Nick Cater, executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, streaming from the Australian Digital Holdings headquarters here in Sydney. Tonight, we'll be taking on the new Puritans, the grinning woke do-googleders who believe that the world would be a perfect place if only we'd shut up and leave them in charge. I'll be joined from the state of New Jersey by Noah Rothman, the author of an impressive new book, The New Puritans, Fighting Back Against the Progressives' War on Fun. Rothman's not the first to explore the uncanny resemblance between woke dogma and old-time religion. But reading The New Puritans for me was a light bulb moment in understanding what it means to be woke. To be woke is, yes, is to hold certain beliefs, uh, on things like climate change, race, transgenderism, for instance, and to hold those beliefs as a matter of faith, as a credo from which followers cannot depart if they want to remain a member of the elect. But it's a faith that puts heavy emphasis on good works. Woke, uh, the woke people are on a personal mission to tone their vision into a reality. They're convinced that the world would be a better place if only we'd let them get their way. Curiously, it leads them to take a kind of censorious stance uh, towards not just those who oppose them, but towards what they consider to be frivolous activities like the art, cinema, literature and sport. Uh, a sort of censoriousness that we associate with the conservative establishment of, of a former era. Their influence on the modern world is frightening as they attempt to put a stop to anything they don't think conforms with their view of what it is to be a good person. For evidence of that, let's look to the US box office figures uh, for comparative genres of movies over the last 20 years. It shows that the proportion of comedy movies, that's uh, represented by the light blue line, has halved in the last 20 years, from around 20% to around 10% today. As for romantic comedies, forget it. 2003 produced great rom-coms like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Love Actually and Something's Got to Give. Today, rom-coms have fallen from around 6% of box office to virtually nothing. Well, joining me now in the studio is, uh, joining me now from New Jersey, I should say, is Noah Rothman, senior writer and podcaster for the National Review and a previous associate, previous associate editor of Commentary. His first book, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America was published in 2019. His latest, The War, the, the, the New Puritans, was published by HarperCollins last year. 
Uh, Noah, welcome to Battleground. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. When I uh, read the New Puritans last year, I thought, this guy's nailed it. I mean, many of us have been making that comparison between the climate change movement, anti-racism movement, the transgender movement, et cetera, et cetera, as essentially moral believing communities, religions, if you like. You're much more specific, however. You talk about it as a form of puritanism. Why so? Right, because, uh, well, as you say, this isn't necessarily uh, the most uh, innovative uh, observation. Many of uh, many people have had this observation and likened uh, the uh, modern left with its emphasis on moral redemption, uh, which is quite a departure from the liberalism of the 20th century. Um, but they've likened it to something akin to a religion, and I, I see that. But it's more than that. Um, it doesn't fit within the rubric of religiosity as we understand it in the West, because it lacks a deism and it lacks the capacity for moral redemption, uh, which the vehicle of which tends to be a deism. Uh, it is a much more all-consuming habit than that. It is a way of life, a theory of social organization, an alternative theory of social organization, but one that's very familiar in the American and the Anglo tradition. Uh, and perhaps Puritanism is as close as it gets insofar as it prescribes a moral code, uh, a theory of how society should organize themselves around that code. Uh, and it has a, a distaste, a palatable distaste for distractions and frivolities that um, take you away from your moral duty to focus on and dwell upon the world's evils and its horrors and its imperfections at all times and in all things in order for you to focus on that which you can achieve, what you can do to make this a better world. Uh, in the abstract, it's a wholly noble moral code uh, in its manifestations in day-to-day -day life. We see it primarily as a, a, a zealotry, a fundamentalism that uh, fixates on trivialities at the risk of the grander picture. And that is very similar to what we saw in Big P Puritanism in the 1600s and 1700s and what it evolved into, which is really where our minds go when we think about Puritanism, which isn't necessarily puritanical at all, but more of a Victorian moralism, that kind of preening, blue nose, scoldish uh, moralist. That's what we think of when we think of Puritanism, which is more of a caricature of Victorian era ethos uh, than Puritanism itself. But that applying that rubric to the modern Puritan or modern progressive project opens up a whole lot of doors. It really does feel like a decoder ring to help you understand the all these bewildering phenomena that we're witnessing. Yeah, so it's, it's a, a faith of sorts, if you like, but it's also a program for society furthered by good work of the righteous. Any activity not seen as useful for the cause, like humour, for example, is regarded with contempt, isn't it? You're supposed to be... Um, they talk about the work uh, nowadays, don't they, in the anti-racism movement. We're expected to do things. I mean, it used to be all we had to do is put our... separate our rubbish in the right bins, and that was the work, but, but now with anti-racism, it's much, much more intense, isn't it? That's quite right. So, I mean, I began this, this work as sort of a big question, the mystery being for most of our adult lives, at least my adult life, um, it was the conservative right that, was, that had an obsessive bent and fixated on the culture, the common culture that they thought 
um, was had the capacity to degrade society, not only degrade it morally, but to erode the structures that held it together. So they fixated on innocent cultural fare and the tabloid trash you read. Uh, and that those roles have reversed in a way that's kind of surprising. And as you talk about entertainment, you see now entertainment companies um, introducing these plotting didactic narratives into otherwise uh, harmless products, har harmless pro mostly for children, in fact, so that they serve a higher social purpose than just entertainment alone. You can't watch a sports broadcast now without having racial politics shoehorned into it because that's just a little bit more important than sports, right? Mm. Comedy, you can't just simply have a laugh for the sake of a laugh. It has to be laden with this burdensome didactic narrative that drags you into some sort of a moral lesson. All of this is very familiar and it is indeed puritanical. Um, one of the aspects of what we hear from modern social justice activists and those of a, a particularly puritanical progressivism um, emphasize the work, as you say, and they mean it to be a real labor. They mean that you have to subordinate yourself to struggle sessions and you have to endorse kind of humiliating experiences. Indeed, the advocates of this sort of thing say it's not going to be fun. You're going to experience profound discomfort. And that is part of the process. You are in being um, initiated, inducted into this philosophy. Uh, the puritanical aspect thereby uh, that, that links this um, modern strain to its forebears in the 17th century uh, is that the work was one of the facets that we under one of the one of the labors you undertook in life to demonstrate uh, your godliness. The great works that we leave behind are, are an, a mark of our capacity to mimic and uh, and behave in a fashion that is similar to God, as close to God as we can possibly get. The sweat on your brow is the only metric we can use to actually gauge your level of religiosity. Um, and that is a facet of modern progressive activism. When they tell you about you know, the, the labors that you're supposed to undertake to be a, a good and noble person. But again, unlike a common religion, uh, a Western religion as we understand it, there's no pathway for redemption here. And frankly, it's not as though your input in this process is, is solicited or desirable. Uh, you are to be lectured to and in indoctrinated until you are properly educated in the new sacraments. Yeah, because it's not like just enough to be anti-racist in your head, is it? I mean, uh, to be anti-racist or to be not be racist was something we were, I, f I felt, definitely brought up to do as kids. And, and in, in, in our day, it was that old-fashioned idea that we were supposed to be colorblind. You know, we weren't supposed to notice you know, the, the color of somebody's skin was the least important thing about them. Uh, but but now it's right, got more to be than colorblind that. now is to be racist. I, exactly. Sure. I mean, it, it, it has been. It, it, if I was to say that in in uh, some circles, most university campuses, I, I would be condemned as racist just for simply saying that color doesn't matter. But where do we get to this idea that in order to, to be anti-racist, you actually you have to work to be anti-racist. You have to go through the you have to do the gestures of, of taking the knee uh, and so forth. Uh, wh when did that change happen and why? Um, well, the origins of this philosophy are, are far uh, you know, back in, in, the, in the 20th century. And a lot of that is back in, I did a lot of that spade work in my first book, which is on unjust social justice and the unmaking of America, because this is just a manifestation 
of social justice activism. In the United States, there's this controversy right now over what is woke? What does woke mean? Does it have any sort of real universal definition? And if it doesn't have a universal definition, does anybody who uses it particularly as an epithet or a pejorative really even know what they're saying? The design there, transparently, being to anathematize the word and to throw brushback pitches at people who use it as an epithet to get them to stop using it because it has become a liability for progressives. It no longer advances the progressive project in America. It's become uh, something that you would say in order to uh, just dismiss uh, an activist in the social justice left. Um, some of the origins of this philosophy, I think you talked about briefly this anti-racism idea, um, and that is much more of a social modern social justice theory, one of the progenitors of intersectionality, uh, a professor by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw Williams. Uh, posited this thought experiment, and it's kind of a noble thought experiment, um, that prejudice is not necessarily something that happens uh, in one particular fashion. It uh, manifests in different forms and in degrees, and somebody who has different accidents of birth that are subject to different prejudices, maybe those prejudices overlap. Uh, it's the sort of thing that is helpful to think about, but to organize your society around this idea quickly gets you into something that very much resembles bigotry. Um, this was Hayek's critique, Frederick Hayek's critique of social justice, is that prescribes a society that would have to treat individuals very differently, which wouldn't be a noble society at all, to, in order to achieve real true equality, by which they, they mean equity. Um, and so in order to think in intersectional terms, you have to steep yourself in stereotypes. You have to marinate in these bigoted ideas because you have to think like a bigot. You have to, to see somebody and say, okay, I can understand your entire life's history by virtue of the accidents of birth that I see before me. And if I were a bigot, I would think of you as X, Y, Z, uh, negative stereotypes. And now to counteract that in your mind, if you think in intersectional terms, you would say, okay, well, then I need to organize society around those stereotypes in order to correct for them. But you're still thinking in stereotypes. You're still organizing your society around what you admit to be racial and bigoted uh, theories about how uh, people behave and, and what their experiences are. Um, this all originates in the 20th century. It has become an organizing philosophy now, uh, partly because of this particular generation that's upcoming now has a, uh, a fixation with safety and with uh, preserving um, comfort and safety over the excesses of liberty. It is an anti-liberty philosophy. Not necessarily authoritarian, certainly totalitarian, not necessarily authoritarian, but it is a theory that is hostile to liberty because it perceives you to be unequal to the measure demanded of you if we live in a liberal society. Um, it's very skeptical and hostile of individual personal freedoms because it looks down, frankly, on individuals mm. and, and personal freedoms as a result. Um, so it is it is new in the sense that it has manifested in this particular form of activism, which is kind of at, at one simultaneously menacing and also hilarious. I tried to capture that as much as possible in this book, um, but it's a very old theory of how society should organize themselves. You do capture the humor. I mean, there's plenty, it's not hard, is it? There are plenty of quite absurd examples of this. I mean, you mentioned, for instance, um, according to one um, an analysis, apple pie is racist for reasons which are probably ridiculous to go into in any detail. But whilst, it, whilst it's humorous, it's it's humorless, isn't it? In the, in that it, they they, they are. De it's a deeply mirthless philosophy. And and you put some statistics in your book which chilled me to the bone. I mean, I I picked this up 
just through going to the cinema or not going to the cinema because there's nothing worth seeing. But, but you say that in 2008, comedy movies accounted for 25% of Hollywood box office takings. 10 years later, just 8%. Why is it? Why is Hollywood not telling us funny stories anymore? Yeah, and, and so very few will outright admit it. Um, but I have a quote in there from Will Ferrell, comic actor, well-known comic actor, who sort of let slip that it's just too fraught of a landscape now to make big box office, um, big ribald comedies, the sort of stuff that 10 years ago uh, would have made big bucks. And there's a lot of cross pressures there. There's uh, pressures from the small screen, from streaming services, what have you. This is not monocausal. But there is an element of the nature of this industry in Hollywood and the audiences to which these films are appealing that simply don't want ribaldry. They also don't want sex sequences. Um, the big you know, sex sequences, the Washington Post film critic complained about this as well, that those two are disappearing in part because there's an attitude now on the part of liberals and progressives, which would be very unfamiliar to the, to the point of being foreign to their much more laid back parents uh, about how uh, sex is portrayed and how uh, men and women are supposed to behave in mixed company and perhaps the degree to which alcohol being present in mixed company can disrupt relationships. Um, it's, it's funny to see this particular generation think that they've suddenly rediscovered the idea that when men and women are present in a situation that's bathed in alcohol, that socially destabilizing things can happen. <laughs> um, this is a very conservative philosophy that they've suddenly rediscovered for themselves. Uh, but it is something to which I think this younger generation will have to confront one day or another. Somebody is going to come around and say, well, get, listen, you're a little less chill than your parents and grandparents. They were doing more crazy stuff than, than you were than you are. Whether or not that's good is a subjective uh, judgment, but they have rediscovered this sort of philosophy that perceives um, these, these uh, they're not frivolities, I don't want to call them frivolities because you know, they're very important to some people, but they are the stuff that makes life worth living. You know, mm. they're the small pleasures, the small joys, uh, the, the laugh that escapes your gut uh, when you don't want it to necessarily, you know, the Epicurean meal there, you sigh thereafter. These, these are bodily functions. You, your body betrays you in those moments. It's not an intellectual exercise. And as such, it can't be controlled. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely spontaneous and instinctual. And that scares people who want to control you. Yeah. And uh, sport, of course, is another area where where uh, this Puritan philosophy has really taken over. You know, sport, you can't watch it just because it's fun or, or I always think actually sport is actually a, a community uniting thing. You know, if you go along to watch your local football team or whatever, it's bringing the community together. But none of that is enough anymore, is it, in the American National Football League? It began with uh, San Francisco's 49er quarterback, Colin Napanex, uh, Kaepernick, sorry, 2016 uh, knee protest. And that's now become standard, right? The, taking the knee is, is not just in American football, but even in the hallowed world of cricket, for goodness sake. How have the fans reacted <laughs> to this? That's all you have to... Go on. Well, not well, frankly. Um, but you wouldn't know that from hearing sports commentators, from ESPN to the people who call the games on uh, major networks. Um, 
you get the impression increasingly, uh, although it has died down recently, but this used to be endemic, that the game itself was sort of superfluous. In fact, it was kind of shallow. I mean, there are much more important things in the world right now, right? Like racial politics and politics generally. And that's the sort of thing that finds its way into sports broadcasting. And it does, it does turn off audiences. Um, this appears a small digression. My book is organized by virtues, um, unimpeachable virtues like charity and prudence and austerity and all these things that uh, denote um, a life well lived, a moral, noble life. They have been taken to extremes. Uh, and that's that's what I try to focus on. And the sports, when I talk about sports, it's in the chapter on austerity. And there's no accident that the chapter on austerity features both athletics and fashion, uh, which you wouldn't think would necessarily go together. But they do insofar as this modern generation is channeling this very puritanical virtue about um, the unadorned life, a, the noble shedding the vestiges of materialism. Uh, and and vulgarity and immodesty and conducting yourself uh, in a much more uh, demure fashion. Uh, Puritans had a big problem with sports that weren't martial in some fashion or form that served a utilitarian purpose, uh, sort of especially their version of football, which is not too far off from rugby and modern American football, mm. um, that they would saw that as uh, pride before God, a, a, a really a, a kind of a gauche display of physical prowess in ways that were um, uh, not sinful necessarily, but certainly immodest. Uh, and it denoted uh, something that you should be ashamed of. And it was policed. Likewise, uh, there were sumptuary laws in early America, and there are today prescriptions on the sort of fashions that you can wear uh, unless you, are, you find yourself that you have accidents of birth that allow you to wear this sort of thing. Um, there's policing of, uh, of Hispanic women who wear, who are non-Hispanic women who wear hoop earrings. This is a fashion that is reserved explicitly and, and exclusively for Latin American women. And if you are to violate that, then you are violating an unspoken code of conduct. Uh, and people, and frankly, there's, you can see sumptuary laws, not necessarily laws, but sumptuary um, codes of conduct in the forms in which moral merch takes, moral merch is this idea that um, brands, fashion brands, are basically selling your politics back to you. They say, we believe in this, or this This has a, a political slogan on it, or the, just, the, just the company itself donates to the right causes. And that conveys your appreciation for the cause. You are expected to literally wear your politics on your sleeve. That used to be a phrase that described really shallow and trite politics. Today, it's how you're supposed to navigate life. Mm, mm. And, and food, of course. Uh, they want to regulate what we eat. The production of meat and other animal products is causing global warming, they claim, and the world must move to a vegan diet supplemented only by bugs, the only type of fauna considered to be sustainable. You write, proponents of this sort of thing seem con constitutionally incapable of arguing in favour of a bug-heavy diet because you actually might like it. For the new Puritans, a smug sense of self-satisfaction is the most delicious dish of all. That's <laughs> so true, isn't it? It is, because that's it. If it would be another one thing entirely if they were saying, oh, you need to meet, eat a little less meat because, you know, the vegetables are a non-protein non supplement is tasty and good for you and you'll enjoy it. But to even reduce it 
to something as shallow as personal fulfillment detracts from the great spiritual experience upon which you're about to embark. Um, it emphasizes self-deprivation and privation in some in some senses, um, because that is your mark, uh, the mark of you as a noble character. You're willing to submit to what is frankly going to be an unpleasant experience, but you are doing it for the betterment of society as a whole. And I take it along the same lines of the policing around cultural appropriation, which is another thing that's very difficult to define. It's sort of a, you know it when you see it kind of thing. But it has been used, this this indictment has been used to, um, to attack people who are successful at what they do, particularly in the food space. And its cumulative effect has, first of all, it, it's, its advocacy is for racial essentialism. That you, if you do not share a particular race, or if you even if you have an appreciation for it, you studied all your life, doesn't matter. You are not allowed to cook X amount of food, X X food in X way, um, because you don't have the racial characteristics that make you that make it authentic. It's a very silly, shallow philosophy, but it's been ap applied to great effect to get a lot of people who are very good at their jobs uh, to give up their careers in some cases, or simply to be to have to close the doors on whatever institution they were running. And the cumulative effect of this kind of advocacy is to rob the rest of us of something nice, of something enjoyable. It's almost never directed at individuals who are massacring some culture's food and therefore appropriating it, abusing it, and commercializing it. It's only dedicated to people who are doing a good job at what they're doing. Yeah, let's stay on the food thing because there was an example in the book which I think showed how competitive Puritanism can be. There are many examples of people who've tried to act in a way they think will appease the Puritans, only to be accused of not being humble enough or pure enough. And you, you give this example. Abe Conlon was the chef at a popular Chicago eatery called Fat Rice, which served cuisine from former Portuguese the former Portuguese colony of Macau. Uh, now, there, he's immediately on thin ice there for cultural appropriation. Uh, but anyway, his restaurant in 2015 was proclaimed the most universally beloved restaurant in Chicago by Chicago Magazine, so he was doing something right, until the summer of 2020 in the wake of the George Floyd, mur George Floyd murder. Uh, the restaurant tried to do the right thing. It posted a supportive message which read, we remain dedicated to our values, we oppose all forms of racism, we stand with those fighting for justice and equality in our communities in Chicago and across the world. Fair enough, you'd think they'd have ticked all the boxes, but apparently not. A former employee posts, you're not going to say hashtag Black Lives Matter, even though you take from black culture all the time. And with that, as you say in your book, the dam burst. Tell me what happened. Well, uh, there was a backlash around this particular, I don't name him because I don't think he deserves to be named, but he was a former employee who was disgruntled. New York Times wrote this up and noted the degree to which uh, Conlon was something of a prima donna in his industry, uh, loud, boisterous, aggressive. Uh, and this is in, they noted that this is something of a feature in the, in the food service world. Um, I think it's part that, of the job description, isn't it, for a celebrity chef? <laughs> that is, that's exactly right, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's an admission that what you're talking about here is status quo, not something out of the ordinary. Now, maybe it shouldn't be, 
but it is. Mm. And that wasn't what got him fired anyway. What got him fired or didn't fire, what forced him to close the doors on this restaurant, voted Chicago's best restaurant some years back, um, was this controversy over the idea that he had engaged in a racial contretemps, that he was appropriating black culture, profiting off of it, and um, you know, just essentially looting the shared uh, cultural history of black Americans. And it's nonsense. It was just an accusation that happened to be made at a time during a, during a, a, a widespread moral panic around race relations in the United States, and it cost him his livelihood. And it cost the people of Chicago a really darn good restaurant. And it's one of only a handful of examples, or one of many examples, a handful of which I write, write about in that chapter, because you couldn't fit them all in there, uh, that are, it, it's the activism that is being expressed here is designed not to enlighten or to educate or to better society. It is designed to detract, to take something away, to make someone else's life miserable. And the people who engage in this sort of thing get a thrill out of it, not just because you know they're in, engaged in advocacy and it's kind of in, in, you know, thrilling and enlivening in that sense, even though it's really base, but because they're demonstrating their own virtue their capacity to see through the the peel back the the curtain in the world and see its hideous hidden workings that the, only those who are properly educated and initiated into this philosophy can see themselves anyway there's a sense of exclusivity to it and that's got to be its own reward i don't see how they enjoy it uh, having studied this to some degree i don't get it but it's appealing enough to enough people that there must be something there well, in the case we just mentioned uh, about the fat rice restaurant, of course, there's, an, there's an, uh, an element of a personal grudge there, isn't there? It's a former employee, one take it, he was, he was a disgruntled former employee and he finds an outlet to get back. And this, is, this I think, is, is the problem that this has brought upon us, is an absence of proper process. Uh, you see it in the Me Too movement, you know, you declare somebody to be have offended the rules of the Me Too movement, that's it. You know, the, the condemnation is enough. Uh, so, and this, of course, is, is common in Puritan societies. I, 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 the, the example comes to mind of the Salem witch trials where, you know, when you delve down to find who was making the allegations, uh, very often it was built on personal malice or, or some personal grudge rather than any real feeling. This is where we get to, isn't it? I think we, we move from a society in which, you know, we have a, a lawful, uh, we have a, 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 a process of law to determine, you know, if we are disagree with people, that's sorted out according to a, cer a certain process, to a process of, I guess, um, you know, tribalism, where anything goes. You can just condemn somebody and that's it. Yeah, that's precisely right. Um, the, you bring up the Salem witch trials, and I, I talk at length about that in my last chapter because um, the belief in witches was quite common, and trials for them, while slightly rare and, and severe punishments for them, even rarer um, before 1799, um, or yeah, 1799, 1699, whatever, I forget when they were, um, they were you know, rare, um, that happened, but they were usually uh, magistrates would intervene in the process, they were empowered to do so, and they would uh, mute the passions of society. And after King Philip's War and a series of uh, existential crises for the Puritan way of life and the nullification of the charter of, for Massachusetts and the subsequent uh, revisiting of that charter, 
um, which ended up creating sort of the proto-democratic character of what eventually became the Massachusetts Bay Colony and then eventually the state of Massachusetts, um, deprived Puritanism of quite a lot of the elements that had tamped down those passions. And so while as the as the ground is shifting out from under Puritanism, uh, creating the conditions for a moral panic, the magistrates who were once empowered to intervene in these processes were no longer able to do so. So in these particular trials, you had groups of people coming in to witness them. You had these spectacles that were put on by the, the witnesses and a lot of passion involved in the demands for some bloodshed. And you would usually, in, in the time before, you would have uh, institutions that were empowered to intervene in this process, and no one was. So what you had was mob rule. And what we see quite a lot today is moral panics fueled by crowd passions uh, of sort of lizard-brained mob. Uh, there is only one mob in history. They are all very similar in their character. And um, one of the... One of the aspects of this philosophy is that it, it embraces the extrajudicial and, and, and collective punishment in ways that a classically liberal society organized around the rule of law simply cannot abide, mm. which is part of the reason why they have such frustration for uh, the rule of law with its evidentiary standards and its, its meeting out of justice on an individual level. Uh, that's the sort of thing that is wholly unequal to the task before us in the eyes of a social justice advocate who believes in collective justice and collective punishment and the empowerment of ben, ben, uh, beneficent institutions to redistribute both economic and social goods to groups, to take some away from empowered groups and to give them to disempowered groups based on their subjective assessment. None of that is, is possible in a, in a constitutional government in a liberal society. It's part of the reason why they have such frustrations with constitutional governments and liberal societies. Uh, and that's another facet of their uh, vestigial Puritanism that is coming to the fore. Can we you talk about the Black Lives Matter movement for a moment, uh, which which um, you know appeared to come out of the blue. Uh, interestingly, during COVID, when a lot of people locked down and had a lot of time, uh, possibly on Twitter or on the internet, and less time talking to real people. But it did seem to us, from where we sit here in Australia, that this just thing blew up into something that became enormously powerful uh, and uh, ended up uh, having a lot of consequences uh, for people who, you know, saw something wrong with it and, and wouldn't go along with it. What was your take on it at the time? Well, it depends. I, I, I recall sort of the um, real nascent elements of what we saw in 2020, which really manifested in this explosion of uh, violence in the summer of 2020, but as well as just a general moral reckoning in just about every institution with histories of racism real or imagined. Um, but you saw the bubblings up of something along these lines as early as 2014 uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, after the killing of uh, a young man uh, by police uh, with the idea that he was uh, unarmed and was surrendering to police at the time. Uh, it didn't happen to be true, but it, the narrative caught on and it fomented uh, this uh, this shift. It, it actually um, accelerated what was already a shift on the progressive left, which was already gravitating towards progressivism, uh, away from 
uh, conventional economic message around economic inequality and towards a much more social philosophy around uh, racial reckoning and racial rapprochement insofar as it can be engineered from the top down with a lot of redistribution and punishment, collective, collective uh, punishment along the way. Um, what I thought about at the time was that it was an iconoclastic movement in the worst possible way, uh, that it tore down, that it uh, declined to build up. Um, what it manifested and what I focus on in the book, because trying to keep it as uh, without, you know, the existential menaces of a lot of this stuff and try to focus on the degree to which this is a self-defeating movement because it is hilarious, is the degree to which you can see racism now, if you're a devoted follower of this philosophy, you can see racism now in some of the most banal, mundane activities. And this is, again, a, a demonstration, the projection of inward insecurities onto these externalities demonstrates that you are of a particularly enlightened mindset. So you can see racism in baseball card trading. You can see uh, how uh, men sewing are advancing social justice initiatives, how decorative cotton fronds perpetuate systemic racism, why knitting is a, uh, is a, a racial, racially hostile and appropriative uh, uh, activity. And that's the sort of thing that sounds crazy to somebody who's not initiated. But it also demonstrates, A, your virtue, if you're supporting this sort of thing, and B, your cleverness, that you can discern with your keen senses of propriety racial contretemps where the, the otherwise uh, people who are just you know, going about their lives would miss them. One of, the, um, one of the most puritanical elements of this particular weirdness is their hostility towards holidays. Not just because you know, holidays are, are a frivolity, but in the most puritanical sense, and I mean the Cotton Mather sense, literally taking words out of his mouth, saying that these holidays allow you the space to behave intemperately. You drink too much, you eat too much, you consume too much, you divert your attention from, for the modern Puritans, the great progressive pop project, advancing, uh, advancing the progressive project and bettering everyone's lives as a result. In the Puritanical sense, you take your attention away from God. They are the, all the same thing. So we have attacks on Halloween for its culturally appropriative costumes and uh, Christmas uh, the, or the winter holidays because uh, they're vestigial aspects of our culture, vestigial aspects of our culture that encourage uh, frivolity, enlightenment, and, and distraction. And Thanksgiving, of course, which is an American holiday that celebrates A, the Constitution, and B, consumerism. And there's just nothing to think about. There's nothing to, to, to satisfy yourself with that sort of a holiday. So you have people thinking that it, are talking about how it should be a national day of mourning, how we should sit and atone for our sins on this day. I can't think of a more direct metaphor for puritanical thought in modern life. And this is coming from the formerly permissive left. Let's go to that link with religion again, because in terms of formal religion, there's been a, a sharp decline, at least in people who say they're, they're associated with religion in the US as here. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder whether the actual number of, you know, truly believing Christians or, or uh, you know, uh, people of other faiths has actually declined or whether it's just people who are associated with them who has declined. But 
Either way, those numbers are down and, and the role of religion is uh, almost non-existent in our, in our public schools, for instance. So kids will emerge and they're not, they're not, they wouldn't be aware of the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example, or its meaning. Uh, so without um, this completely, um, uh, now we've expunged, if you like, religion from the lives of people. Is there a, is there a gap in their lives, a, gap, you know, a need for meaning? Uh, you know, a craving to be part of something bigger, to be, to be uh, that, that new Puritanism fills? Well, I think so. I, I think there are very few uh, explanations for this sort of behavior that satisfy in the absence of that theory that the material, the uh, conventional and the physical are just simply not as satisfying as perceiving yourself to be uh, advancing a great work, a great project that has a spiritual element to it most assuredly because it produces a, a sense that you are bettering yourself, that you're advancing, you're advancing yourself, not because you're learning anything new or creating anything new, but you are uh, getting more in touch with your, uh, the unseen aspects of your environment, um, which is a very religious uh, way of thinking. And, you know, the United States is, and in the Anglo world in general, uh, has a great awakening in it just about once a century. And we're pretty well due. We haven't had a great awakening in quite some time. And there's a lot of secular, the popular culture, the, the dominant culture is very secular, as you say. Um, so, people who are not otherwise exposed to the scripture uh, or other traditional Western religions or may have a hostility to them will nevertheless exhibit religious traits in the pursuit of secular activities. And it's hard not to hear a, a, a sort of a spiritual aspect to this to their, uh, their uh, philosophy once they begin to talk about it. And it's in weird ways because it's the stuff you wouldn't otherwise think of would have a, a religious aspect at all. You talked about, for example, let's go back to food, meat eating. You scratch the surface of, an, of somebody who's an evangelist against uh, the, uh, the consumption of animal protein. And you'll get to religious arguments right quick. They will talk about the ways in which they are offending uh, that uh, animal husbandry and livestock cultivation is an affront to the Eden into which we were born. It makes of you a burden on your neighbors because of its health defects. Uh, it is uh, it is a, uh, a a difficult you know some people who struggle with this and, and confess their sin of having eaten meat that they struggle with the temptation of it and that it is, quote, Christ-like. There are other people who I, who I quote say it's Christ-like to abjure the temptations that are presented to them by animal protein, which, and it is very tempting. I mean, you put it, you, you have a, a delicious bite of a, of, a, of a prime rib, perfectly cooked medium. Yeah, it, it can be a quasi-religious experience for you too. It is for me. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I sympathize with them in that sense. But they're not using scientific arguments. They're not using economic arguments. They're speaking the language of morality. And the language of morality has a uh, religious character to it that I don't think any of us should ignore. Uh, they, we didn't, they wouldn't recognize it in themselves. Uh, they need somebody to, to, to see it and tell it to them. They would reject my interpretation, I think, strenuously. But I don't know what else to call it. Hmm. Well, the, the manner in which they deal with dissent uh, has um, overtones of... Uh, 
you know, casting out apostates or, you know, the, 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 the Christian brethren that closed um, uh, Protestant sect where they would, they would cast out somebody who walks in a disorderly way. So if you, if you offend them because you don't go along with it or you say something that's wrong, it's not just a quiet ticking off and then you're all friends again. You are cast out forever, aren't you? And we've had this experience in academia, uh, people who've been through it, uh, people like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, for instance, or, or Jordan Peterson famously, will tell you that it is a horrible thing. I mean, it is almost life destroying. It brings you to the point of, in some cases, you know, contemplating taking your own life when the group turns against you. But th this is the mechanism that seems to be used to, to ensure conformity, isn't it? You, you don't want to be cancelled. You don't want to be the one who's trending on Twitter for all the wrong reasons. No, pre precisely. And who would? Um, I, I mean, that's a very powerful inducement. And the shame of the public square uh, was obviously a feature of puritanical life. It is a feature of us today. The problem being is that the, the town square, as it, such as it is, resides in your pocket. Now you, you go to sleep with it. You sit with it on the couch at night. You wake up in the morning. It's there with you. You commute with it. It is there judging you always. Uh, and that's a profoundly psychologically destabilizing condition. Um, it's, I think part of the reason why we're even aware of this trait, because that what you're describing is a fundamentally antisocial uh, trait, a, a philosophy that would be educated out of you if you spent a lot of time around mixed company. And most of these, particularly as you, you noted in academia, there's very few places that that you can say have nothing you know, nothing resembling mixed company. Academia is one of them. Um, the the traditional faculty, the faculty lounge of today does not have a lot of mixed views represented in it. So yes, it enforces cultural homogeneity. Uh, that's not necessarily new, it's probably a very human experience. Um, but when it's, when it's combined with this overarching totalitarian moral code that prescribes in all things and in all facets, particularly that which should be apolitical, removed from politics, the imposition of political themes on it, uh, then yes, it becomes absolutely socially destabilizing. But it also makes you miserable to be around. And this is one of the fundamental flaws of this philosophy that I try to end with in the, in the chapter on where this goes and perhaps what you can do about it, is the degree to which all this isn't natural. It must be imposed on you and induced. Uh, there needs to be um, a constabulary, for lack of a better term, that enforces these mandates on you, because otherwise you would slough them off like an undue burden. Uh, and it, it is in that that you have the makings of this movement's own destruction. And it's not something that we can't foresee or predict, because these things happen in cycles. The Puritanism of the 17th century died. The moralism of the, of the Victorian era died. This particular brand of humorless meddling will die too. It's just a question of how long it'll take and how much damage it can do before we get there. Well, you've brought us at least to the redemptive ending, haven't you? Your, your, your hopeful message is that this state of mass confusion won't last forever, that, that our system of government is actually designed to frustrate absolutists and force trade-offs and water down bold initiatives in the absence of bipartisan consensus. So will the new Puritanism collapse sooner than we think under the weight of its own absurdity? So it depends on where I'm at when I wake up in the morning. There are some days where I'm saying to myself, this is a movement that is bent on its own destruction. 
it, it's it's energies are devoted entirely to policing its own members in very destructive ways that are casting out people who are otherwise persuadable to their points of view, it's going to destroy itself. And then there are other days where I think it's just amalgamating itself into a Borg, and then once it's completely uh, assimilated, then it will train its fire on harder targets and present much more of a menace. So have we reached peak Puritanical progressivism? I don't know, and I can't say. I do think that we will ha we have some cues from history that'll tell us how approximately this gets dismantled. And I look primarily to commercial culture, which I think will play a, a very important role in dismantling this philosophy. And the history that I look to is uh, bound up in the phrase banned in Boston. Banned in Boston used to describe uh, Boston it was in the United States, the heart of mainline Protestantism. It was where Protestant moral philosophy was most pronounced and where it manifested most acutely in law. Uh, so it's where dime store novels were banned and books were bottlerized and plays were banned and songs couldn't be played on the radio. And it was there was a quasi scientific theory of moral sentiment that uh, buttressed it, that it was very authoritative moral science that was being applied in Boston. It was very successful. It was very effective at bottlerizing and banning uh, a lot of very good artistic works. But it undid itself as the phrase banned in Boston went from being a, uh, a prohibition, a profound admonition and warning not to consume whatever this entertainment product was, to a powerful advertisement for it. Uh, artists around the country, authors, singers, songwriters, novelists, all sought actively to have their stuff banned in Boston because it would increase sales everywhere else. It was a profound advertisement for whatever their works were. And the modern um, equivalent, insofar as there is one that I, I think I identify, is banned on Facebook. As you have, especially during the 2020 election in the United States, there was quite a lot of, uh, again, moral panic around the idea that people could be unduly influenced by stuff they read that would train, you know, transform them into uh, racist bigots that were going to burn down whatever their, their local library was. And so there was an effort to keep a lot of this stuff away from consumers' hands. And by banning something from advertising on Facebook, you only advertised it and, and created a groundswell of support for it. There were a handful of books that were uh, you were unable to advertise them on, on Facebook, and all of them became wild commercial successes, only by virtue of the fact that they were rendered taboo. This is a movement dedicated to making a, an untold number of new taboos and enforcing them. And all the taboos do or create an interest in whatever the taboo is supposed to be. Uh, so yes, I think if we will see this philosophy dismantle itself, I think the pressure from uh, just commerce will put a lot of downward pressure on it from without, and then it will, if it collapses, it will collapse from within when its members, at least some of its most influential members, come to the conclusion that this political philosophy, maybe it's got some noble aspects to it, but it is ultimately self-defeating to pursue it because what have we gotten out of the deal besides marginalizing ourselves? And that's where it, then that's where the whole thing just collapses under its own weight. Let's just give another plug to uh, Noah Rothman's book, The New Puritans Fighting Back Against the Progressives' War on Fun. It's published by HarperCollins. It's available on Kindle and on audiobook, which is where I listen to it. And Noah, you read it yourself and you do so very well. Thank you for joining us on Battleground for a conversation which has been both informative and I'm delighted to say fun. Thanks very much. Thank you, Nick.
And now the point of the show where I welcome you to the conversation through your emails, comments, messages, tweets, or however else you'd like to respond to whatever I say on ADH, on this program, all my columns in The Australian or anywhere else that'll have me. Uh, last week, uh, again on this program and again in The Australian, I urged the Prime Minister to get on board with the latest carbon-free technology for generating electricity, small modular reactors. Anthony Albanese has made a big leap by embracing nuclear submarines to defend our borders. Now he can do the same in defence of our energy security. The Prime Minister can safely dismiss any fear at all that this policy change might embarrass his energy minister, Chris Bowen, who insists against all the evidence that nuclear generation is too expensive. As I concluded in my column, through his artless performance in a portfolio which he falsely believes he understands, Bowen has surpassed even Keating in his ability to embarrass himself. Ross writes, since Albanese and the most incompetent Bowen have blacklisted coal and gas from having any part in our nation's energy needs, the obvious answer is nuclear energy. Nuclear power can perfectly fulfil Labour's paranoid lust to reduce our already minuscule carbon emissions. But unfortunately, Boeing keeps telling us that renewables are the cheapest form of energy available. Boeing wants to festoon our nation with windmills and mirrors. That Albanese will consider nuclear is never going to happen. Well, Pete writes, the door is open on nuclear, but one obstacle, politics. It won't be a rational discussion. We need a change at the top. I just can't see Labour leading this debate with any credibility when you have a minister so ideologically driven that he ignores nuclear completely or the cost of wind and solar in the long term as so, so onerous that other priorities will suffer. Uh, I fear you're right, but I hope you're not. Kate responded, great thinking. Thanks, great writing. Thanks, Mr. Cater. I'm afraid I might have confused, <laughs> sorry. Thanks, Mr. Cater. Good on you, Kate. Uh, you can call me Nick, by the way. I'm afraid I might have confused some readers, however, by referring to Antonini Albanese as a member of the intellectual left. Uh, Peter writes, I really must protest, Nick, to call Albanese an intellectual is a stretch too far. Well, I can't argue with that. Finally, my comments about Chris Bowen prompted Max to make an amusing comparison with the old BBC sitcom, Some Mothers Do Have Them. He writes, Bowen is going to go down as the Frank Spencer of Australia's political life. And I have to presume the ALC, ALP leadership doesn't care. That's priceless, Frank. I like that. Uh, unfortunately, he may go down as the Frank Spencer of Australian political life. The difference is this time nobody will be laughing. Thanks very much for joining me on Battleground this week. Thanks to the team here at ADHTV. And uh, thanks, too, to my wonderful team at the Menzies Research Centre. Please keep your comments coming. You can email me at nick.cater at adh.tv. Or you can communicate with me any other way you can get through. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks very much. Good night.